0: And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Amen. You may be seated. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, we're going to consider this text from Revelation 12. It's fantastic. It's one of my favorites. It's just the best, but before we do, I think it's good on St. Michael's Day to review what the Bible says about the angels, at least a few things. We have a lot, actually, of information about the angels in the Scriptures, these heavenly beings that we cannot see and that we learn of through the Lord's holy word. So a couple of things by way of review, and then we'll consider the text. First, we want to remember that the word angel refers to the vocation or the office or the calling Of these spiritual beings. The word in Hebrew, moloch, and in Greek, angelos, means messenger, and it can refer to human messengers as well, to the pastor or to the person who delivers the news or the mail. It's It's a messenger, an angel who comes to bring it, and this refers to the work that the Lord has set these angels to do, that is, to deliver and to preserve the Lord's work. So, the angel is what they do, but when we talk about what they are, we use the word spirit. That refers to the beings that we refer to as the angel. In fact, here's the definition Angels are finite spirits without bodies, complete in their spiritual nature, personal, rational, and moral beings of great but limited wisdom and power, and of various ranks. And orders. The angels were, like everything else in the universe, created by God at some point in the six days of creation. Probably very early, because we're told at the end of the book of Job that the morning stars rejoiced as they saw the Lord creating the, the world and the work of creation unfold. There are a fixed number of angels. They are neither married nor given in marriage, so that there are no little angel babies (laughs) even though they show up on the cards all the time it's all always baby angels no there are no baby angels no families of angels and neither do the angels die the classic attributes assigned to the angels are one indivisibility because they are spiritual two invisibility they cannot be seen three immutability they don't change especially they don't get old immortality They don't die. Endless duration. That means that they had a beginning, but they have no end. Illocality and agility. Those are two interesting ones. Illocality is trying to sort out how the angels relate to space without actually having a body. So that's the theological word that the church uses to describe that. It is to say that the angels do not take up space. They they, they are not, not... with their they have no bodies to actually locate themselves in space and yet they are present at a certain place. They are not omnipresent like the Lord is in every place. So they're illocal. They're present at a place but they don't take up space. And also being limited to a particular place, they have to move from one place to another. And this has to do with what the the old theologians called their velocity or their agility or what one theologian called, this is one of my favorite theological phrases, extreme locomotion. (laughs) (laughs) That means that the angels can get from one place to another very quickly. It's amazing to think about. Now, at some point early in God's work of creation, perhaps even before the six days of creation were finished, there was a rebellion amongst the angels, amongst the spirits, it was led by the devil himself, and one-third of the angels fell, and we call these fallen angels the demons. These angels, fallen angels, maintained their strength and their intelligence, but now they have a will that's bent on the destruction of God's work. Here, here's the work of the e- evil angels. I'll quote again from the theologians. The evil angels, being since their fall enemies of God and of his children, are under, the prin- under their princes ever bent upon destroying the works of God, counteracting His purposes, doing and promoting evil. And though subject to God's supreme dominion and control and confined within the bounds of His permission, they are in various ways occupied in strengthening their kingdom and exerting their power in the minds and bodies of men. So there are angels and there are demons, and they are all around us. We simply cannot see them. It's an amazing thing simply to pause and reflect on that, and that in this space, in this place, there is a cosmic battle taking place between those who are supporting the preaching of the Lord's Word and His kindness coming to us and those who are opposing it constantly and trying to stop it. Now, in regards to the work of the demons, the Bible teaches us about demonic possession, and this in two ways, both spiritual possession and physical possession, as well as demonic oppression. And these are categories brought to us by the devil that we, uh, we want to also assert in our own time. I got an email just from someone yesterday asking, hey, does the Lutheran church believe in exorcism? And the answer is yes, indeed. And we believe that the devil continues to work as he has worked from the beginning and will work in the end to overthrow all that the Lord has done. And he does this by taking possession of all those things which he ought not to possess. The souls, hearts, and minds of humanity, and this is true for all unbelievers, and even in, ca- in some cases, the physical bodies of people. So we read in the scriptures of the demons taking a young boy and throwing him into the water and the fire or another one causing him to shake and foam at the mouth we hear of one man who was who was living in the prison in the uh, in the cemetery and had so many demons that when Jesus asked their name they said we are legion and that this man lived amongst the graves and had the strength even to break chains and we say yes these are possibilities and not something to be treated lightly there's also another category which we want to call demon oppression, and that is that the demons can simply get after individuals. That the devil can put his thumb on someone and exert a special kind of energy to try to oppress them and afflict them. And I suppose, in one way or another, all of us face this demonic oppression. When it's time to come to church, when it's time to trust the Lord's word, when it's time to Bless one another in the Lord's name. The devil comes and tries to stop this over and over. So the demons are doing their work. But on the other hand, the Lord's good angels also are doing their work to support and uphold the Lord's word and His work in the world, especially the church and the Christian home. Now the angels are also, like the demons, involved in the general affairs of state and also society, as we, we sang in the hymn, that's the one Melanchthon hymn that I think we have in the hymnal that the devil wants to overthrow church and family and state. All three estates are under attack by the devil and all three are being protected by the Lord and his holy angels, especially the state insofar as it supports the Lord's gift of, of this life and also the gifts of the life to come. Now, it does seem, and this is an interesting thing to note as we just are making a list of some of the things we know about the angels, it does seem like, according to the words of Jesus in Matthew 18, that the children are appointed guardian angels. Jesus talks about the little one, and he says, their angels behold the face of God in heaven. Now, if, so that's a true thing that the Bible teaches. What we don't know I wish we did, but I, we don't have enough information to know from the Scriptures. If those angels uh, are reassigned when we reach a certain age or if they stick with us our whole life, kind of hope so. But we don't know. Now, a couple more things on the angels. The angels, both the good and the evil angels, are confirmed in their condition. It's one of the differences between, between humanity and the angels. The angels, it seems like, had one, one moment where they were either going to be for God or against God. And at that moment, after that free choice, they were locked in so that the, the good angels were confirmed, the theologians say, in bliss, while the evil angels were, cons- were confirmed in their malice. And there is no con- uh, converting or redeeming the fallen angels. They are and will remain fallen. Neither is there tempting the good angels from the office that they have. They, it is a locked-in moment. So, that's good. So, we thank God for the ministry of the angels. Remembering that He sends them to serve us. Now, this is an amazing thing and maybe the last thing to remember about the angels. The angels are greater than we are. I mean, just on the chain of being, the angels stand above us as the beings of light that stand right next to God. And yet, the Lord has determined in His mercy that these great and powerful beings these holy and righteous spirits would spend their energy and their wisdom serving you and me. And we thank God for that gift. It is a tremendous gift. And we pray every morning that the Lord would send His holy angels to watch over us, that they would bless and keep us. Now, with all that in mind, that's a lot, but with all that in mind, I want to turn our attention to Revelation chapter 12. Where we hear of St. Michael, we hear of St. Michael just three times in the, in the scriptures, in Daniel twice and then in Revelation chapter 12. And Daniel has a unique uh, job or office that he's given to do. And that is, in Revelation 12, uh, Michael is to remove the devil from heaven. Now, what is going on here? This is the story. The, revelation, the vision that God gives to St. John in Revelation chapter 12 is really a vision that covers the whole of human history. It starts at the beginning of chapter 12 with a pregnant woman in labor to give birth. And this is a, a way that, that the Lord is picturing for John Israel uh, in the Old Testament. Ever since the promise that God gave to, uh, to Adam and Eve in the garden that, that her seed would crush the head of the serpent, Israel has been a pregnant woman waiting for the birth of the Messiah, the promised Messiah. And there is a second vision that's there. The devil appears, and he's there waiting to devour the child that's born. Now, this is an incredible and quite stunning picture that you can see it in your imagination, this woman laboring to give birth and and a fiery red dragon waiting to eat the baby as soon as it's born. It's really quite a horrific picture, but that's a way of understanding all of the trouble of the people of God all the way through the Old Testament. When we see Pharaoh having the babies thrown into the Nile River, or, or Herod killing all of the babies in Bethlehem, or all of the enemies of God's people always trying to destroy Jerusalem, we're seeing the dragon sitting there ready to destroy the baby. He wants to bring to nothing this child who was to rule the world with a rod of iron, but he fails, and the child is, the text says, caught up to God in heaven. So in one verse, it goes from the birth of Jesus all the way through his life, his his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his appearance, and his ascension, just like this. I'll read you the text. Revelation 12, starting with verse 5, She gave birth to a male child. One is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God into His throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 1, days. That's three and a half years, the time that the Revelation uses to describe the trouble that we have in this life. Now, what happens then? And here's the thing. I mean, this utterly compelling picture what happens when this child, when your Jesus, ascends into the heavenly throne room? What, what happens to that place? Remember the throne room of God we've seen all throughout the Scriptures. In fact, that's where the prophets stood to hear the Lord's Word. you got to imagine it. I don't know how your imagination is, but you have to imagine this huge, big sort of place that's crowded, and in the middle of it is a throne. And, and in that throne room, or in that chamber room, there's probably five or six things that happen. There's conversation between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and there's praises that are offered to God, and there's petitions that are heard, and there's people who are sent forth from that room. But the main thing that happens in that throne room, at least as far as this Revelation 12 is concerned, the main thing that happens there is a court case over the righteousness of individuals. So remember, just to put it in our mind, remember how it was in Job chapter 1. It's, we see this throne room, and, and, and the devil comes, and the devil apparently has a, a chair with his name on it for the devil's use only or something. He has a reserved seat in the heavenly throne room, and he comes and he takes his seat And the Lord says, okay, now we're going to talk about Job. Have you considered my servant Job? He's going to be on trial. And the devil starts to bring accusations against Job. Well, he's only righteous because you give him so much stuff. He's only righteous because you give him so much health. He's only righteous because, because, because. And the devil starts to bring accusations against Job. And then the devil goes down to see if he can make those accusations come true if he can make Job curse God and die. But here's the point, that there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a court case happening in heaven over your righteousness. Now that is frightful. And maybe even more frightful is that the person, the, the prosecution against you is none other than the devil himself. That's what the word Satan means. It means accuser. He is, remember we read it in the text, He is the one who accuses our brothers day and night before the throne of God. So that the picture of heaven, now imagine, because all of us think, man, how we long to go to heaven, but imagine if this is the vision that we have of heaven, is that heaven is the place where there's a trial being held over your righteousness and the devil is there presenting evidence against you. And he doesn't have to lie. He doesn't have to make stuff up. You, you know your sin. You know what you've done. And the devil is keeping track of it. You know the commandments that you've broken. You know the, the love that you have failed to show. You know how you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God so that the devil doesn't need to, to lie. He has plenty. You, you and I have given him plenty of evidence to work with, and he is there carrying it before the throne of God. Now that is terrifying. Imagine standing there when you finally reach that place, when you breathe your last and you now die to stand before the Lord and there you stand and the Lord says, okay, now it's time for judgment and there is the devil who has a list of all of the things that you've done wrong. Now, that's the picture in the background of Revelation 12, but Revelation 12 is going to tell us what happens when your Lord Jesus, who has died for you, who has shed His blood for you, who has suffered on the cross for you to win your atonement, to win your forgiveness, what happens when He goes to heaven, when He goes into the court? Hebrews tells us that he carries his blood inside the veil so that Jesus now enters into the court as your defender. The word that we have in the Bible is advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he is going to come into this court and he is going to argue his case. But he does not bring the evidence of all that you've done good all the, the, the good works that you've done, all the things that you've managed to accomplish, all of your good intents, He does not bring that into the heavenly court. No. He brings as evidence on your behalf His blood. His suffering. His cross. His resurrection. His body broken. He brings that before the judge. And that evidence prevails. (laughs) This is, I, I don't know anything better to tell you guys than this. The blood of Jesus prevails before the throne of God so that the Father sees the evidence of your sin brought by the devil, and He sees the evidence of His Son brought to Him in His suffering, death, and resurrection, and you are acquitted. You're declared to be innocent, righteous. That's what the word justification means. That you are that you are declared holy and perfect and without sin. That the righteousness of Christ belongs to you. That the price for your sin has been paid and now you are set free. So can you imagine like this is how I like to imagine it. I'm standing there before this throne of God shaking to my boots because Lord knows how many How guilty I should be before the throne of God. And the devil comes along and says, We see how scared he is. He should be. Look at these things that he's done. Here's one. Here's evidence of Brian's sin. And he brings it and he presents it before the throne. And Jesus says, Jesus says, Objection? Your honor? My father? (laughs) That sin is died for. And the devil says, Well, that's not the only one. (laughs) I've got more. I've got a whole list. Look at this sin that he did. And and Jesus says, objection, your honor. That sin is covered by my blood. And the devil says, well, that's okay. I've got more and more and more. And, And the devil continues to present the evidence of our sin. And time after time, Jesus stands there with his blood and his death and his suffering and his cross and his atoning work. And He he objects to every single sin, every single accusation, every single attempt at your condemnation. It all is drowned by His blood. That sin is covered. That sin is atoned for. That sin is died for. I suffered for that sin already. I paid for that sin already. Not with gold or silver, but with my holy, precious blood. My innocent suffering and death covered that sin as well. Every single one of them. Everything. Everything. Now, is there sin? Look, is there sin bouncing around in your conscience that still seems like it's accusing you? Jesus says the same thing about that sin. It's covered. It's done for. It's forgiven. He took care of it. You, you cannot out-sin the saving work of Christ. He covers them all. And what starts to happen in this heavenly courtroom is that that now that Jesus stands there as our defender and our great advocate, that the demonic work is all of a sudden out of order. In fact, at some point, the Lord says to the devil, Look, you're in contempt. As you sit there and argue against the blood of Jesus, as you sit there and try to argue that sin should prevail, you are out of order, but the devil won't stop. And so the Lord says to his bailiff, St. Michael, get rid of him. <laughs> and it goes like this, verse 7. Now, war arose in heaven. It's kind of the last place you'd think there would be a war, right? War arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but they were defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. A little chair for the devil only, it's wrecked, it's thrown out, it's gone. And the great dragon was thrown down the ancient serpent who was called the devil and satan the deceiver of the whole world he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him and i heard a loud voice in heaven saying now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our god and the authority of his christ has have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our god no longer listen you do not have an adversary, a Satan, an accuser in heaven. You do not. You have an advocate. The devil no longer stands before God bringing to him all the things that you've done wrong. Instead, the Lord Jesus stands there pleading for you for God's mercy. And God hears the prayers of Jesus and forgives you your sins. Now this is good news. You are declared righteous and holy and acquitted in heaven. But the text says that now that the devil can no longer do his work in heaven, he comes down to do his work on earth. And this is really what we have to deal with. Because the devil can no longer accuse you before God the Father in heaven, but he can accuse you now to yourself. The devil can no longer stand in the heavenly court and accuse you, but he can come down into the courtroom of your own conscience, the courtroom of your own heart, and he can accuse you there, and he does. That's where he does his work. He knows that his time is short, and so he comes to each one of us to try to condemn us, to try to kill us, to try to deceive us, so that we would not trust in the heavenly verdict. Now, how does he do it? There's a thousand different ways. I mean, he is the master of a thousand arts, so the devil's always trying to pry his way into our conscience like a snake into the tent. One of his main tricks, now this is an interesting thing to observe as we try to, you know, St. Paul says we are not ignorant of the devil's devices. One of his main tricks is he confuses the preaching of law and gospel. He does it something like this. You know, the Lord would intend for us to look back on our lives through the lens of the gospel and forward in our lives through the lens of the law. In other words, when we look back and we see all the things that we have done wrong, we want to say, God, be praised that all of my sins are forgiven. And then when we look at what we're supposed to do today and tomorrow, we say, the Lord has told me to love my neighbor and to serve my neighbor and to love God and to trust in Him. So we we go forward with the law and we look back with the gospel, but the devil wants to switch that around. He wants us to, to look forward with something like the gospel, especially when we're tempted to sin. Oh, go ahead and do it. No big deal. Jesus loves you. He doesn't care if you sin. Do whatever you want, et cetera, et cetera. And He wants us then, once we've sinned, to look back with the law. I can't believe what you've done. Look, you call yourself a Christian? And look at that that you've done. Look at the sin you've committed. It's just horrible. Or the the devil comes along and He tries to tempt us into these kind of patterns of sin so that we fall into these these repetitive sins. And He uses this to cause calluses to grow on our own conscience so we don't even. Feel the pain of our own sin. But it turns out that everything that the devil does is calculated to support what St. Paul calls in 1 Thessalonians the lie. The lie. And what's that lie? The truth of the scripture, I think this is the only way to understand the lie. The truth of the scripture is Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the Savior, and the lie is anything that tears at this truth. I don't need saving. I'm good enough. I don't need saving. That's the lie. I can save myself by my own efforts and by my own good works. That's the lie. I have a different Savior. I don't need Jesus to save me. That's the lie. I'm too terrible. I can never be saved and loved by God. That's the lie. Whatever it is, the devil will tempt you away from this saving truth that Jesus is the Savior. But even on earth, He's overcome. Now, this is what the text says. It's really quite amazing if you want to underline a part of the text. Revelation 12 tells us that the devil is overcome depending on how you count by two or three unique things. It just tells us this is how he's overcome. Verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony for they have not loved their lives even to death the blood the word and the not loving your life these overcome the devil Do you see that the devil comes into your ears and into your heart telling you that your sins are not forgiven, that Jesus is not your Savior, that you don't need saving or whatever it is, but the Lord overcomes him and throws him out with the blood and the word and you're not loving your life unto death. In fact, the Lord wants the same preaching that Jesus is now preaching before God the Father in heaven. He wants that same preaching to echo in your own heart and in your own mind so that the devil not only is cast out of heaven but also cast out of your own heart so that he finds no longer a place there as well. He tries I he tries to get in there, but by the blood and the Word, he's overcome. Now, I want you to have this confidence. Jesus says it in Luke chapter 10, the gospel text. He, has said, he says, I give you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions, and you will not be overcome by them. And this is highlighted in the Scriptures. There's a lot of things in this life that we are told that we are to flee Flee, for example, sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6. Flee idolatry, 1 Corinthians 10. Flee youthful passions, 2 Timothy 2. Flee the love of money, 1 Timothy 6. But we are never, you are never told to flee the devil, to be afraid of him, to run from him. No, in fact, the opposite is the case. James 4 says, Submit yourself, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You belong to Jesus. His righteousness, his blood, his death and resurrection, these belong to you. So who will bring a charge? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who will condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died and more than that was raised and is at the right hand of God and he intercedes for us so that we are more than conquerors through Him who loves us. Dear saints, this is our confidence. This is our, our hope and our peace that the devil has been thrown down from the throne of God and that Christ now sits there at the Father's right hand with His mercy for you. Amen. Please stand. Romans 16, verse 20 says this, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen.